This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. The premise of this course is that we have cumulative stress and strain from multiple roles in our lives. And I think this is more of a problem now than it was years ago, though I think years ago there were other stressors that people had. But what we seem to be seeing with individuals is that years before, our role models were our parents, our aunts, uncles, grandparents. And that was sort of, that gave you sort of the idea of these are, this is how we can go about living our lives. Here's a set of ways in which people approached you know, aging and their, their social role in the world. But now, in part because of, I think, the, our social networks and all of our media, we have multiple roles. You can kind of pick and choose, and we, we see evidence that people are doing that. There's, of course, our family roles, the parent, the partner, the breadwinner. Tonight we're going to hear a lot about the caregiver, an important role across the lifespan. We have work roles, career or volunteer, whatever it is that is the work that you do uh, that's outside of the previous roles. And you can have, many of us have multiple ones of those. Uh, there's the whole idea of being successful in your work role. And work can also create conflict. And we talk about job stress and job strain. And there are many people who look at me and go, well, there's job stress, but what about just, you know, this job stress, there's home stress, there's relationship stress. When I studied job stress at Lockheed Missiles in Space, and at that time, this was back in the 80s, most of the people at Lockheed that I initially studied were men, and then we did a whole study on women working at Lockheed. The men actually turned out the stress in their lives was not working at Lockheed. What, and you know, So this whole study was set up with this premise that they were under job stress. And then when we finally got in and interviewed them, the stress in men's lives, particularly men in the mid-years, was very different. Does anybody have an idea of what they found to be their main source of stress? It was not spouse. It actually was teenage kids. It was home. It was just home. And it was so light. Work was where they could go to get away from some of the home stress. And the home stress, some was spouse, but it was mostly teen kids, driver's licenses, all of those kinds of things. So it's, you know, it's, it's there for both people. There are so many role models. And this is part of the point here, that you go from a you know, grandmother, a mother, an aunt, to all of us having as many role models as we want. And this creates in our minds sort of the super mom or the super dad both in the people that we know and the people that we see on television and in the media. There's a super successful career woman or man. We've had some of those speaking here at this panel, you know, and we've joked a little bit about that when I read their bios. Uh, and then, you know, there I have my, my superwoman, my colleague, who just seems to write another article every three days. You know, it's just, I even know her and we joke about it. I say, how do you do that? Um, and then there's, there's also super caregivers who seem to be able to do all of these things at once. And what we end up doing, and, and see this as I'm a clinical psychologist, I see people pulling these together, and they want to be all of it at once. 
Um, lecture number one that we heard about, and I'm going to start weaving these lectures together, was about the brain, and it indicated that there may be some biological underpinnings that might make, for some of us, some roles a better fit for us than others. But I would argue that we start with the brain, but the influence of these social pressures and the environment really begins to shape that and turn that, so that very few of us, I think, look like those prototypic male brains or female brains, because I think it gets very, very influenced by the social world in which we live. And then there's these, if you add the multiple role models, particularly this time of year, as some of us we talked about last week when we just came off of Thanksgiving, you, know, you could have the Martha Stewart or Julia Child for the holidays living right next door. I did. I did. I had Martha Stewart. I mean, this unbelievable person who would bring me homemade persimmon. Just, I made four. Would you like one? And I'm going, you baked? What? What is it? You mean the oven thing? The big one that you have to like, oh, with the thermometer deal? Um, and then there's, so then we had lecture number two and just another source of stress that is particularly true for women in our culture is the whole thing about body image. In addition to family roles, work roles, you know, being a, you know, sometimes a single person taking care of the home. There's the yard, you know, the people that grow all their own vegetables. And then there's, you know, looking good and exercising and taking care of yourself. And then lectures three and four began to look at what's the impact on this, the impact of, on our sleep, the impact on our mental and physical health. Now, I'm going to argue, and you're going to hear this from Dr. Eppel tonight, that this is all not negative, that there are some really positive things in each of these roles, as we know, the role of parent, the role of grandparent, which is something I'm just beginning to experience, the role of being a partner, and the role of being a caregiver. So there's wonderful positive aspects of each of these. Uh, oops. And what I wanted to share with you, though, is we get from this lecture and then we come together, I hope you'll come to the last lecture, I'm going to begin to put these puzzle pieces together. But I will just give you a guide because each one of us, the answer in this of how to sort of reduce the stress in our lives is for each of us to really begin to think seriously about how we would like to put those puzzle pieces together for our own self. Apart from all these social demands, you pick what really fits for you. And that's what we're going to be trying to do next week. And I invite you to bring um, others with you, significant others, and anyone you'd like to, to come to that lecture. Some of you got an invitation. This is something Alyssa thought of during the day today. She said, what if people could bring a caregiver or someone? But we thought about it too late. We learn every day. And so we've learned that's a great idea. I'll invite people to bring others. So let me just, I'll skip over the course overview because you've heard that, but you're beginning to see this is coming together both with looking at our multiple roles, the impact it has on our lives, looking for the positives and some of the challenges, and then next week we'll weave it together. So tonight we hear about family caregiving as fate, but also opportunity. And then next week we'll have overcoming the superwoman syndrome, creating a personal path to wellness. It brings me to the most um, exciting part of the evening, short of getting to hear Alyssa, is introducing a dear friend. Alyssa Eppel is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UCSF. She received her training in psychology from Stanford and Yale. Oh, this is when we start to go, oh, and feel a little overwhelmed, because not everybody goes to Stanford and Yale. Um, 
and she focused on health psychology and behavioral medicine. And she completed her clinical training focusing on behavioral medicine at the Palo Alto VA healthcare system down in Palo Alto. And then she did a postdoctoral fellowship in psychology and medicine at UCSF, and that's how I came to know her. She's a faculty member in the health psychology program, the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. She's part of our center, which we're very proud to say. Um, she also is very involved in the Robert Wood Johnson Health and Scholars Health and Society Scholars Fellowship Program and the Assistant Director in the Center for Health and Community and Co-Director of Research for the UCSF Center on Obesity or COAST. That's a great, great website. If you have any issues around diet, health, um, weight control, look up COAST, C-O-A-S-T. She studied studied the impact of stress physiology on metabolic health, including food intake. We've talked a little about that under stress. We eat more. Insulin resistance, obesity, premature aging at the cellular level, and how health-enhancing interventions might enhance regulation in each of these systems. Along with Elizabeth Blackburn, the Nobel laureate in 2009, and other UCSF colleagues, she demonstrated, and she this is really, really, you just mentioned her name in many circles, people's eyes just light up. She demonstrated novel links between stress and stress arousal with markers of cellular aging. This includes telomere length and telomerase activity. Her basic research um, aims to understand from both a psychological and a biological perspective why some people are more vulnerable and others are more resilient to chronic stress. And everyone in this class is going to get more resilient to stress. Don't worry, it's going to just happen by being here. And the stressors she's looked at are caregiving and financial strain. Her recent studies focus on mothers of children with autism and caregivers of family members with dementia. She's leading clinical trials examining how stress reduction interventions may reverse or slow cellular aging. Lastly, she is co-founder of um, Telomere, Telome, excuse me, Telome Health Incorporated, a startup company that's optimizing measurement of um, telomeres and telomerase. So it is really my pleasure, it's my honor to introduce Alyssa Eppel to you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. So when Margaret asked me to give a talk for a women's health series, I thought, well, I have to first think if I have anything really new and worthwhile to say. And then I, uh, because I have done these talks before, and then I thought of caregiving, and I got very excited. um, Because this caregiving is... Um, it's a pers- the topic of caregivers is a personal passion of mine, but it also deserves a whole hour because you, it may not call out to you as a topic, but it will. <laughs> if you are not currently a caregiver, you may well be one, and you certainly know one or will know one. So, so when we think of... Um, Caregiving. This is really a uh, a role that we think of as a chronic stressor, a really prototypical um, example of something that people have to deal with day in and day out, and that's very hard and, and can be you know considered a crisis. Um, when you think about the Chinese character for crisis, it's really interesting and convenient and beautiful that it actually has two pieces to it: danger 
but also within that danger, there is opportunity for positive change and growth. That's how we interpret it as psychologists. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. So really, um, we'll be looking at caregiving closely and what we know from the literature on caregiving about the costs, how it affects mental health and physical health. And then we'll also look at, at the positive side of being in a chronically stressful situation, which is the growth side. Um, so uh, we'll talk about effects on brain and body. Then we'll, we'll focus on resilience and really try to think about what is resilience. It sounds good. What's, you know, how do we operationalize that? How do we bottle up and give it to everyone? Because we all have stressors in our life and could use more resilience. Um, and there's a, a little bit of a, of a not new literature on resiliency and then um, kind of bringing together the disciplines or traditions of clinical psychology and Eastern psychology, there's a, a very interesting, exciting picture emerging about how to deal with situations that won't change, that are chronic and uncontrollable. And that's where I think the real answers and insights about resiliency stem from. So I'll be talking about um, new approaches there. And the bottom line there is that our relationship to thoughts, not, the, not, not just the thoughts we have, but our relationship to the thoughts are what most shape how much we suffer and how much we can glide through the ups and downs in life with resiliency. So I always have to start here because stress researchers like to slice things up and uh, in really distinct ways and talk about them. You know, the word stress is kind of includes everything, so let's break it down. So we have the situations, the things that happen to us, so we call those stressors. They can be in the moment, they can be events that last for months, or they can be chronic ongoing events. Um, then we have our response to the events, our mental filter, and so this, you know, I'll talk about as perceptions of, of stress or perceptions of threat, how much we feel like we can't cope with situations. And then there's how stress gets under the skin, and that's the physiological response, which stems from how much we feel perceived stress and threat. So caregiving is an example of a chronic stressor. And I'll just list for you here some other examples so that you can think about them and whether you have some of these in your life as well. So this lecture is really relevant to um, a broader audience, not just caregivers, because it's what I'm going to be talking about you can apply to these other situations such as um, financial strain, job strain, relationship conflict or dealing with divorce, dealing with chronic illness of yourself or of others, loss and bereavement, and traumatic events. So now we're going to go deep into caregiving. So what do we mean by family caregiving? This is unpaid taking care of usually a family member or a friend, and it could be, it's often a, um, an adult taking care of a parent with a disability illness, or um, a common, common one is, of course, dementia caregiving. There, it could be a partner caring for their, their um, wife or husband who has dementia or a chronic disabling illness, or it could be a mother caring, or, or a father caring for a child with a chronic condition. And that type of caregiving we don't really think about because we call it parenting, but that's really what, where caregiving starts. So caregiving is across the lifespan, and this is kind of super parenting or um, 
really, really, if you look closely and you understand what these parents go through, it, it falls smack in the middle of the caregiving literature. So here are some examples of what it feels like. And these are um, quotes from different people, of course, anonymized. So I'm going to give you a minute to read these. So for someone who is caring for a loved one with dementia, um, they, they can feel like they've lost the person because the, the person they knew and the ability to converse with them the same way is gone. Um, they can also feel, you know, like, I've got this husband, but he's not a husband. I wouldn't wish him to die, but there's not a marriage there left. So there's a lot of loss, um, even though the person hasn't passed away, in chronic uh, dementia caregiving. Now, what about parental caregiving? Here are some examples from uh, mothers of children with autism. Driving around on vacation... He, my son, was physically attacking my husband 24-7. She's 13, and I can't let her out of sight because she has no stranger danger. The day he was diagnosed was the worst day in my life. We um, interview caregivers about their experiences, so we hear the whole range of experiences, and, and these are all common reactions. Caregiving is very common, 30% of the U.S. population are some type of caregiver. When you break it down, it's mostly an adult caring for another adult, 24%, and 6% include caring for a child with a chronic disability or disease. Half of those parents are also caring for an elderly parent of their own at the same time, the sandwich generation. So they're a particularly vulnerable group. There are more caregivers who are, tend to, who are women than men. And 30% of caregivers report that they're the only one responsible for their loved one's health. So it's a tremendous responsibility. If you don't do it, if you can't meet this person's need, then it won't be met. So it's kind of, we think of it as a 24-7 demand. So it's, uh, it's very common, and in fact, it's really um, caregivers serve as a labor force that's the backbone of society. If you actually break it down financially, unpaid caregivers provide 90% of the care of long-term cost, and particularly of complicated chronic care in the home. So we think of this as an, a free service. And, of course, it has a tremendous cost to, to the carer. But altogether, it saves $400 billion, $450 billion a year. And that's just for, uh, that includes just for care, caring for an elderly person. So that doesn't even include all the parental caregiving. So it has a tremendous cost, of course, for the caregiver. And that's something important for us to think about as a society and take into account and not take this role for granted. And the other piece of this is caregiving does slide one into a lower socioeconomic bracket. It's expensive. The, the family member often can't work and make income outside of the home. And uh, one survey showed that women caregivers are more than twice as likely to be to live in poverty. So how many people here are some sort of caregiver? 
Okay. We're, we're, um, I'm going to rely on you guys to share some experience here. So my first question for you is, is caregiving more like a marathon or a sprint? Any other answers? For me, it's both. Ah, it was a trick question. It is like a marathon, no question, but it's also like a sprint within that marathon. The different crises that arise, there's ups and downs within the chronic situation. So I definitely um, think of it as a marathon with many unpredictable sprints along the way. So if you think about a stressful event... It looks like this, red line. Something happens in our life. We are, we, we are at this peak crisis point. We have to deal with it and mobilize our energy and resources. And usually um, our body's very good at mounting a big acute stress response. And then there's resolution at some point and recovery. And psychologists have studied this process a lot, of coping with life events. And from this, you can think about this is the sprint, and there's in recovery, there is often hindsight and growth and a chance to regenerate. And so that's the process when we talk about, oh, you can grow from the stress, you'll be stronger, et cetera. It's usually, it's very easy to think about that model when there's a peak in recovery. With caregiving, you can see that. It ramps up more slowly, usually, when the, um, as a person gets more ill. And then it stays demanding for years. And you don't know when it's going to end. This is your family member. Um, so it goes on and on. And then within that, there are the, the, the little sprints, the peaks and the troughs. And maybe it might, your life might get down to normal for a while, for a day, for an hour, or maybe longer, maybe for months. But it, but it goes on and on in terms of this is your life. So what does it feel like when you think about how your life is and how it might be different than other people's you know? What does it feel like? Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. That is, many people share this experience. So her, her mother got dementia. For those of you who couldn't hear, she and her sister from a young age took on the role of caregiver. So they were less carefree than their peers, and they were doing different things than they expected at this young age in life. And they were both mourning the loss of their former relationship with their mother, as well as taking on this tremendous, vital responsibility. Thank you. So one of the things that people often feel also is that they didn't ask for this. This is an unchosen role. This is something they fell into. And, of course, they want to take care of their loved one. It's a, it's a, a duty and um, something that they can feel good about. But they feel stuck because you can't get out of it and there's no end. And so what do you do about that? You feel trapped. This is a common feeling, and it's not something to belittle. It, it takes a lot of adjustment. It doesn't happen overnight. Forty percent of caregivers feel they had no choice in this. So, for example, they've said things like, I've been dealt a, a poker hand that I don't know how to play, 
I feel trapped. I didn't want this. This feels unfair. And people who do feel that they've had to take on this role involuntarily actually have a harder time caregiving. They fare worse. They feel more emotional strain, more resentment, and uh, in some cases have worse health outcomes too. So this is, a, this is an important piece of caregiving is this, this adjustment. And uh, you might think of it as a bitter pill, something, something that you can't control but you have to take. Um, this is something that I, uh, um, I first got interested in this when um, I became, uh, one of my family members gave birth to a child who was, um, during the birth process, was officiated. The hospital gave um, her too much Pitocin, her uterus ruptured, and then she was left with, um, the poor baby was you know, severely brain damaged and in many ways. And so, you know, it was clear that one of the, you know, some of the huge challenges that arise were acceptance, acceptance that you had a beautiful baby and now you don't, acceptance that your life role has now changed to one of caregiver at a different age and stage than you expected. And another thing I I noticed through helping and being um, one of the caregivers was how Easy, or how much easier it was for people who had a lot of religion, religiosity, a lot of faith in God to make sense of something like this that happened and to make to make meaning of it. So religion is really one of the things you can't just adopt it if you don't have faith. But I do. I did envy people with that faith because it, it helped them um, cope so well in similar situations. So one of the things that happens when we are faced with a situation, a stressful situation, is that we immediately make a judgment about how stressful it is. And so, you know, two kind of stereotypical responses, this is overwhelming and I can't cope, and that tends to trigger a huge physiological response. Another response is, well, this is manageable and I can, I, I have the resources to deal with this well, and I might even grow from this experience and have mastery. And of course, so we call this a threat appraisal and a challenge appraisal, and of course, um, challenge appraisals are, we think, lead to you know, less of a physiological response and better adaptation. But we can't control our initial responses. Our whole life has pat- and experiences have patterned our brain to respond, kind of have our immediate response to a situation um, be somewhere along the spectrum, all the, all, the, all the way here or all the way there. We can't often control our initial response. But luckily, as seconds go on and time unfolds, we can engage in rethinking or reappraisal. And I want to tell you, I'm going to, I haven't talked about the gloom and doom yet, but I'm going to first talk about a really hopeful, clever study that's going to make you, um, give you one other coping strategy. And this was done by a colleague of ours at UCSF, Wendy Mendez. And so she studied students who are about to take the GRE. And she asked them to, um, you know, take a test in the lab, and, ex- and she got them very um, motivated to do well. And, of course, they had a big stress response. And for half of them, she told them to think about that physiological response, all those cues, that racing hard and those thoughts, as energizing and positive. And guess who did better on the test? Those who reappraised that stress response, that uncontrollable physiological response, as helpful and positive. 
not only did they do better right there in the lab, they actually scored better on their GREs, their actual GREs months later. So it was kind of a phenomenal reappraisal that stayed with them. Um, one of the uh, landmark studies on caregiving measured um, how strained elderly caregivers felt. So they used um, these researchers, Schultz and, Schultz and Beach, used a large sample of elderly people, and they had uh, people controls, people who weren't caregiving. Then they had uh, caregivers who were, um, sorry, th- these were the controls. Then they had caregivers who didn't report any strain, and then they had caregivers who felt very strained. And the caregivers who experienced a lot of perceived strain over the next five years had a 63% higher rate of dying. That is not too surprising. They, they have probably had more demand and were feeling a lot more perceived stress. What's so interesting here is this bar. These are caregivers who have a similar situation but were appraising it differently, didn't feel as much strain, and they look just like controls. And this is one of the bottom lines in the resilience story, which is that you may need to face a certain situation, but if you can do it psychologically in a different way, then you might look like more like a control. Then, then you can actually go through with less wear and tear. And so it's not just falling into a situation that is deterministic for your fate and your mental health. One of the things that people notice about caregivers is that they are very vulnerable and they tend to fall ill a lot. Um, for example, one quote was, my, per- my husband is the person with Alzheimer's, but now I'm the one in the hospital. 13% of dementia caregivers die before their loved one dies. And that is thought to be due, part of that, due to stress. So I talked about perceived stress, having low perceived stress as part of this resilience formula. So what does it look like to be a resilient caregiver? Well, here you have a typical person. So the blue is all of those situations in life that are difficult. So this might be work stress, financial strain, any ongoing situation that someone has to deal with that's in their environment. And here's their response, this subjective stress response. And this is not, these numbers are not exact from any particular study, but let's just say it's 50-50. So there's, um, there's a 50-50 ratio of how much actual burden you have in your life and then your response to it. We are great at creating misery. You know, much of our, some people think that this is probably 80%, the, the, um, or 90%. You know, there's that famous quote that um, life is 5% what happens to you and 95% of how you respond to it. I'm not sure I got this percents right, but the idea being it's really how you react and what, what you do. So let's say this is 50-50. Then you have a caregiver, and they have much more burden, and that is the, the, um, unex- the unchangeable reality of their life. And they also tend to feel a lot of distress. And in some cases, being under chronic stress causes you to actually perceive things and react in a more exaggerated way. To events. So, for example, we have in our dementia caregiver study, we brought people into the lab and asked them how they felt about completing some lab tasks. And so we were wondering whether the controls were going to respond with more exaggerated threat or the caregivers, because caregivers have really tough situations, so why should they care about a little lab task? We found the caregivers had exaggerated threat. So their amygdala, their brain um, center for perceiving threat, 
seems to be on just high alarm chronically. So here you see exaggerated threat, and that's natural, and that's understandable, and the animal models show us how that happens. But it's not inevitable. Here is a resilient caregiver. Same amount of burden, but less perceived stress. So this is like kind of like the data I showed you, where these guys um, didn't have a higher rate of dying compared to the distressed caregivers. So this is what we want to promote, is this greater resiliency. We can't control how much burden we have, but we can control our response. So let's look at the cost of stress. I'm going to give you some examples. What do we know about caregivers? Well, it's no mystery if you're taking care of someone 24-7 that you can't take care of yourself. And so all the research shows that they do suffer from more chronic worry, worry about their caregivee, and lack of self-care. They don't have the time to take care of themselves. They often um, put or not often, they, they, mo- they most often put their caregiving first. So they tend to not get enough sleep. They tend to uh, eat poorly, have poor nutrition, to be sedentary, and to not take care of themselves when they're ill. They, they won't stay home and, and take a sick day. And they also don't make doctor's appointments for themselves. And not surprisingly, there's more substance use and abuse in caregivers. So most of this literature is on dementia caregivers. What is it like to be a parental caregiver? So you go, you're going through life caring for a child who's much more demanding. So after school, what other kids do activities, you might need to be taking your child to appointments. They might need special education. There's a tremendous amount of work in getting their needs met and getting special ed rights. And I was just in a room with... Um, mothers of children with autism, and we mentioned the word IEP, and there was this absolute hum throughout the room because this individualized education plan that they need to get for their child is so incredibly stressful to work through the system and get. So that's just one one example. I um, just loved this blog or this um, the short editorial in the Huffington Post by Maria Lynn, who has a child with a rare genetic disorder. And she, she basically said, here are the, you know, the um, five things that you should know about being a parent of a special needs child. And then she described each one, and I think you should read it. And if you're crying when you read it, you are probably one of these, these parents. So she describes exhaustion. That's what I heard over here, that she's always tired. I am jealous. She's seeing other kids, normal kids, and parents talking about what it's like and this milestone and that and optimizing their child's future. I am alone. So few parents can understand her experience. I am scared. Is she doing the right thing? Is she doing enough before her, her son's brain is not as plastic and can't improve enough? Is she, do, is she making the right choices? Is she doing enough? So that chronic worry... I am human. I've been challenged and pushed beyond my limits. I've grown tremendously as a person <coughs> and developed a soft heart and empathy for others in a way I never would have without him. But I'm just like the next mom. I get cranky. My son irritates me. Sometimes I want to go to the spa or go shopping. 
And then how do people treat the caregiver? Do they ask about how the person's doing? Do they avoid it? Well, with special needs parenting, it's often uncomfortable to ask. They don't know what to say, and they don't ask. And her response is, I want to talk about him. It's just hard. You should ask me. And then her last comment is, I may have it tough, but in many ways, I really feel blessed. So that, there's the positive side. And there's, a, you know, there's a less written about the positive side, but there's certainly people who talk about what a gift it is um, who, to be raising a child with special needs. And there are other parents who feel like, don't talk to me about this being a gift. So they're really quite a range. One of the things that's unique about caregivers is that there is a, a special pain they have that, that is unique to them, which is watching someone they love suffer. For, for people with a chronic condition, there's a suffering that goes along with illness and pain and loss of function. For mothers or, and fathers of children with special needs, there is often the suffering of the child's um, emotional life, being teased, being rejected. It's very painful. Um, it's hard for them to separate their pain. And any parent knows that. When you see your child suffer, you suffer with them. So what about depression? Are all caregivers depressed? It sounds so hard. What's the normal response? There's something called caregiver distress. We measure depression. We give people these checklists. And they score very high on these depressive symptoms. But but few of them actually develop the full-blown clinical depression. So we find that about half of caregivers have significant depressive symptoms. About twice as many caregivers as non-caregivers have major depression. So at any, any time, the rate's about 10%, and about 20% of caregivers have major depression. And this stems often, when you interview them, you find it often stems from both the chronic stress of being overwhelmed, but also this sadness, the sadness of seeing your loved one suffer. Something that's common in caregiving is chronic sorrow. This is different than depression. This is just a sadness that stays with them and that's triggered when they see things that remind them of the loss of their, their healthy family member. So for parents of, of children with special needs, it might be seeing a child, um, a normal child, that reminds them what their child can't do. So chronic sorrow can be triggered a lot. But I think what is phenomenal here is that how few caregivers, even though they're objectively exposed to this uncontrollable situation, get depressed. So it's really, there's a story of resilience. And, ha- and how does that happen? How does that resilience unfold? We'll get to that soon. But let's look at the other side. What happens when caregivers are depressed and they feel like they don't have any outs? Many of you may have heard of this local case this year. It just broke our hearts. Um, it was a, a woman whose son had just grown out of the age of receiving services. And so he was 21. He was very low-functioning. She needed to caregive for him 24-7 while she tried to find services for him. And um, as you can see, she ended up killing him and killing herself. This is not a single story. You can search the web and find murders, 
and suicides of caregivers. I, I searched the web and I found five stories of, of, of mothers of children with a special need, particularly autism, who had, who had this um, ended this way. When this happened, there was an outpouring from the community of parents of children with special needs saying, we get what happened. You can, you can read here, parents of kids with autism are under terrific amount of stress. Many of these children don't sleep at night, so they're chronically sleep-deprived. Um, it's an exhausting experience. And this is the quote that really um, stood out to me. We've all been there, and we've seen that black hole. So there is these feelings of desperation, but there's also resilience that brings them back in. There are roughly 500 murder-slash-suicides a year of caregivers nationwide. So what's happening in the brain under stress? When we are in a relaxed, calm state, we're able to really use our prefrontal cortex, our thinking brain, and problem-solve in a much better way. When we're under acute stress... The brain does something very adaptive. It knocks this off. No, analytic, no, no time for analytical thinking, and it activates that whole limbic system, the stress responses system. And that is very helpful in an acute way to help us deal with crises. But in a chronic way, with chronic stress, that actually causes wear and tear, clearly on the body, but also on these, brains, on these brain systems, um, like the hippocampus. So we're now understanding that there is wear and tear in the brain from the chronic stress response. It also changes how we can problem solve in the moment. So if we're too um, activated in our stress response system, we can't do effective problem solving, and we can only um, see things in a more crisis mode. And this is the reason I'm pointing this, this stress brain out is because part of the solution to resilience is recognizing those hot periods and changing your brain state and bringing it back to more of a balanced state. And that is, that is a necessary part of any type of resiliency training. So what is happening in the body? Um, so let me just tell you really briefly. I, I'll go over this quickly, but I love this new study which showed, yes, exposure to stress, uh, more cumulative adverse life experience was causing wear and tear and shrinkage in some of the gray areas of the prefrontal cortex. And that's not too surprising. We already, we already saw some of that from animal studies. What was so beautiful about this study was it only happened for the people who also had perceptions of chronic stress, high perceived, what we call perceived stress. So you can see the more adversity, this line is pretty flat, the red line is pretty flat. It's the people who had a lot of perceived stress, high chronic stress, this yellow line, they had the shrinkage in their brain. So there you go. There's the resiliency. You might have the same exposure, but if you're not perceiving um, alarm all the time, then you might be protecting your body and brain from stress. One of the ways, uh, pathways where we, of how we think stress promotes early aging, you can see here the perception triggers this stress response, high cortisol, high insulin, high inflammation. And then at a cellular level, it also changes this balance between oxidative stress, the free radicals, and the antioxidant defensives to protect us from free radicals. And all of these 
we know are associated with, with greater cell aging and shorter telomeres. So these little red caps at the ends of chromosomes are telomeres. And Margaret's smiling because she knows I devote 90% of my time to studying these little caps and how, you know, what can lengthen them, what shrinks them. Um, so they're an interesting measure of aging because they, um, they, we can measure them at any time during our lifespan, and they predict, uh, they predict earlier onset of disease. So they're an important kind of prognostic factor. So what do we know about caregivers? Well, we've talked about exhaustion. You've seen example, examples of exhaustion. In studies that have examined parental caregivers of children of special needs who are now adults, so these moms have gone through years and years of caregiving, they find a consistent pattern. And that is that the moms tend to have flat and unresponsive HPA axes. So their cortisol is what we call hyporeactive. It's low, not high. So there's what we might think of as burnout and lack of flexibility. But particularly for the moms who had to deal with more of the acting out and behavioral disorders. So that's particularly stressful. And I'd, I'd mentioned the telomeres already. So um, Elizabeth Blackburn, who, dis, who helped discover these, uses the example of calling them aglets, kind of like aglets at the ends of the shoelaces. They're really long when the shoelace is new or when the cell is new and they wear out. And when they get too short, the cell frays. In our first study that I started when I first came to UCSF, um, many years ago with um, Susan Folkman and Judy Moskowitz, we were looking at um, child, mothers of children with chronic conditions. And in this study, we measured perception of stress and whether they're a caregiver. And in these young, healthy moms, whether they, we had moms who had healthy children and moms who had children with special needs, medical or psychiatric. And what we found was that there was no difference in average telomere length between the two groups of moms. So it wasn't just having a child with, special, um, with a special health condition that mattered. It was the perception of stress. And when we break down that stress scale and we see, well, what is it that was most related to shorter telomeres? This was true for both the moms of healthy children and the moms of children with conditions. And here are some of the items that popped out the most, that feeling of stress, feeling difficulties, feeling unable to control important things. These were related to greater aging. And when we look at people's, how they make um, appraisals of this lab stressor that we give them, we find that people who appraise it with more challenge, feeling like they can, they'll do well, they can control it, and less of the threat, they had long, tended to have longer telomeres too. So that immediate appraisal is important. Um, we also found that the, high, the women who perceived high stress, regardless of whether they were a caregiver or not, tended to have more oxidative stress or free radicals in their blood. So this is, uh, these are some you know, markers that, and indicators that they're on an early accelerated path to bodily aging. But that was, again, not deterministic. So now we get to the part about opportunity and resilience. So what do we, we know about resilience? We know that, um, that most caregivers are not depressed. They have much more stress. They have symptoms, but they don't develop clinical depression. One thing, when I ask you, like, think about what if you became a caregiver? What, how bad would it be? Would it ruin your life? Would you be depressed? People think 
in the future, that things are going to have a huge impact on them. But when they get there and live it, the impact, the huge impact, is an initial burst, and then usually their level of well-being returns to where it was. And this happens both for lottery winners, for example. They have this huge burst of happiness, and then they end up just where they were before. And it also happens to people where, with, um, where negative events happen. So, for example, people in a wheelchair. If I said, how bad would that be? You would forecast that you would be very unhappy. But when you go to people who ended up in a wheelchair, their happiness is the same as others once they get over the trauma and the adjustment. So this is something about human resilience, that we always think things are going to be worse. But we have amazing power to adjust. So how do we adjust? We make meaning of things. We do it immediately. We do it spontaneously and unconsciously. As things unfold, we, we tell a story about why it happened. And when we have a chronic condition, this meaning-making happens over time and emerges. And that's where part of the resilience comes, is through finding meaning in chronic events. And there's an area of research called benefit finding, and they measure what happens to people who have suffered a traumatic event, and you see all sorts of benefits, like increases in intimate, intimate relationships, greater feelings of mastery, uh, greater spirituality. So these are some changes that having to deal with the extreme forces you into this growth. Another thing that can happen is that you notice more positive things. The, the small things that you wouldn't have noticed, if you pay attention, um, then they actually mean more and they help balance their life. So even in the darkest of times, there is a light, if you can remember to turn it on. And one of the ways we can turn it on is through um, awareness, awareness of positive things that we wouldn't have noticed, and I'm going to talk about awareness of awareness, awareness of how our thoughts and feelings are unfolding over time. So with this type of awareness, which is now our given intervention of choice for our caregivers, we're teaching them mindfulness training. People can not, um, they're still stuck with their life situations that we can't change, but they can be free in, in, in many moments of their life. When people have examined what are the rewards of caregiving, Caregiving for someone with mental health or psychiatric diagnoses is very stressful. There's a lot of conflict in the, in the relationship often, and there's um, the usual problems that come with caregiving of lack of self-care. But there's also benefits, and here are um, a list of benefits that family caregivers of either children or parents with mental illness list. It increased self-confidence, maturity, changes in priorities, reflection, becoming more aware of one's needs. So these all fall under the category of growth and character. Um, I'm going to just show you some quick data from our, that caregiving study I told you about of tr mothers of children with chronic conditions and control mothers. And we looked at um, resilient caregivers, and we defined resilience as the moms who, despite caregiving, had very few depressive symptoms. And what we found here is that the caregivers, the high depression ones and the low depression ones, had the same amount of burden, same amount of daily tasks they needed to do for their child. And the control moms had a lower amount of burden, as we'd expect. Now, what about subjective burden? The, the depressed caregivers had more perceived stress. The low distressed caregivers had less 
distress from the burden. This was a measure of how, much, how bothered they are by having to do all these tasks. Now, what about health? Or, sorry, what about threat perception? So we know that the resilient caregivers feel less subjective burden. What about when we expose them to that lab stressor? And that's our way of assessing people's automatic responses to threat. So who's the, who's the most threatened and who's the least threatened? Our depressed caregivers, our controls were equally threatened, and it was our resilient caregivers who were extremely low in threat. So they're different than controls because these guys are resilient for a reason. They, they're, they're already coping in a very different way than normal people are. So now we're seeing resilience above the baseline. This is not just, oh, you look like a control, but wow, you're really um, viewing situations in life differently. So this was very exciting to us to see this. Then we looked at resiliency of their stress response system. Now when we look at the cortisol, the HP axis, and we, um, we want to know if it shuts off normally. There's a test. There's a way to do that. We call it the DEX suppression test. And so we gave them a we gave them all a pill of, of dexamethasone, which is a type of cortisol, and it should shut off their, their cortisol system if they're very healthy and they have a flexible system. And if they have a burnt-out system and they're exhausted, it probably doesn't shut it off. So here's what we found. The depressed caregivers and the controls shut it off in a sluggish way. The resilient caregivers shut it off best of all. So they looked like they had enhanced physiological function too, not just psychological function. And then we looked at their health, their metabolic syndrome, and we found that the resilient caregivers looked like, there they looked like controls. So this is a risk, risk factors for heart disease. And when we look at actual health, the depressed caregivers did tend to have more of this kind of cluster of factors that are a risk for heart disease. Not surprising. And the non-distressed caregivers, even though they're dealing with the same amount of burden every day, were not at elevated risk of heart disease. So... Naturally, caregivers come with a range of resiliency, and our question is how can we promote that? So in our new um, research now, we're trying to, as I said, look at what do we know from emerging new clinical psychology paradigms. We call these third-generation mindfulness interventions. And I guess you can guess, don't look at your slides, but you probably think I'm going to say run away from stress, right? Because I just showed you that perceptions of stress are related to harmful things. So if you're feeling bad, then you should try to avoid that and suppress that and just do everything you can to distract yourself. That would be logical, but I'm not going to say that because it turns out that doesn't work. And in fact, that backfires. So when you... um, when you push negative emotions away, they tend to come back. Um, so what we know, you know, we have these situations that happen and that people have responses to them. They have negative emotions and they have negative thoughts about themselves and they can't control the thoughts that arise. Can anyone control what thoughts pop into your head? Yes. We can control... Uh, to some extent, but if I said, don't think of a white bear, and I monitored your thoughts for minutes and minutes, you would think of a white bear. So this study's been done, and some of you laugh because you know that punchline. When you tell people to suppress thoughts, 
um, what happens is that there's a control system. Um, Let me tell you about the white bear. So we have a conscious monitoring system. And so consciously we can suppress thoughts, and we can do that for a while, and we might be good at that. Um, But then we also have an unconscious search to look for white bear. Am I thinking of a white bear? Look for the white bear in your, you know, um, in your mental uh, sketch pad. So this unconscious search is always happening, but if we're really taxed and stressed, if we're distracted or if we're multitasking or if we have high cognitive load, our attention's being taken up by things, we're not very good at that unconscious monitoring and that white bear pops in. So what does that mean for caregivers? Caregivers in particular are overtaxed and stressed, and so suppression is not going to be very effective. So also negative self-thoughts um, tend to be a very, very common part of the human condition, feeling when bad things happen, feeling like you should have done it better, um, thoughts, I'm weak, I'm a failure, feelings of shame. These are very, very common that pop up if you look at mental content. And these are also things that we find unpleasant, try to avoid. So what do we know about emotional suppression? It's our tendency, we want to avoid these negative things, but... It is related to rebound and also to major depression, major anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, lots of different disorders. So now I'm going to ask you about some emotions. And look at this list and say to yourself, as you go through that list, label each emotion good or bad. Just quickly go through that list and label good or bad. So it's pretty easy. We know what's good and bad, right? So we're just conditioned that way. And we know that we don't want to feel fear and anger and resentment and guilt. And so we try not to, and that's our natural tendency. But actually, emotions are important sources of information. So if you're a caregiver and you're feeling guilt, then you can look at that and learn from that and listen to it. And it often means something needs to change. So if it's bad, our natural tendency is to push it away. And we also raise our kids this way. And it's very hard to tolerate negative affect in our culture. In fact, everything in our culture says we we shouldn't feel bad and we should feel happy all the time. So there's kind of a striving for happiness. And um, I noticed that in my own tendency. The other day my son came home from school very sad about some, um, some events that had happened during recess. And... In hearing about that, I can't tolerate seeing his sad face and hearing about the pain he's in. And I just want to make that go away as soon as possible. And I, my immediate tendency is belittle what happened, tell him it's not important, and try to get him to see it differently. And I, had, I see someone shaking their head. That is not going to serve him in the long run if he can't actually look at what happened and feel sad and let me let him feel sad about that as the holder of his experience. So, so that is, uh, you know, a, an ongoing job for all of us is to try to catch ourselves when we try to push things away or have our children or loved ones push experiences away and let them be with it so we can tolerate the negative. And when we tolerate it and, and accept it, it goes away. It goes away more quickly. So that's where these therapies come in. I'm going to describe to you two therapies that we are just enamored with, and we're trying to take from these clinical therapies, or at least from uh, 
one therapy that's used clinically called acceptance commitment therapy and adopt this for resiliency, for general better living for people under stress. And in particular, a current study is, as you might not be surprised, for caregivers, um, for mothers of children with autism. So these, uh, I'm gonna, we're, we're borrowing from both mindfulness and from this other therapy, acceptance commitment therapy, and they both have the same endpoint, which is promoting a state of awareness of awareness. And I'm going to go through some slides describing them for you, but I don't expect um, uh, to really be able to give you a sense of what they are because they are experiential trainings that if you want to um, taste them, you can go through some of the trainings that are available, for example, at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. So what is mindfulness? It's bringing awareness to moment-to-moment experience without defensiveness. So if we're feeling sad, without pushing that away and just noticing it, and also noticing what our thoughts are. So if we're feeling bad, we might be thinking, I shouldn't feel bad, or I'm not good at this, or any negative thoughts. So we need to look at our thoughts and feelings with a kind and non-judgmental attitude. And one thing about mindfulness is it's not just that we're noticing content and following that, we're actually, it's the process of awareness that we're promoting. So it's the, what, what people do like to call the awareness of where our awareness is. Um, that, 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 uh, people laughed, and I, I know that sounds, it's, um, it sounds like, uh, something intangible, but if you, um, we're going to do a mindfulness exercise at the very end, so you'll you'll see more of what I mean. So this mindfulness training has been applied for uh, parents of children with special needs and autism, and the idea behind it is that part of child um, the child's symptoms and functioning is, of course, is affected by the parent being able to. Um, be there for the child and notice their, when they're becoming dysregulated and be more attuned with them. And mindfulness training teaches you both about your own mind as well as reading signals of others better. And so in this study, um, they trained parents to perceive and respond to a child differently, differently than the traditional rigid behavioral approaches. And they found that it did enhance relationships both for the parents with each other and with the children. And in the children, through Training the parents, the children had lower aggression, less self-harming behavior, and better social skill functioning. So it does look like it's promising, which is partly why we're using it. Now, part of mindfulness training is, is teaching people um, to also use uh, meditation in the morning. And we know that many people will never use meditation. And so we're integrating acceptance commitment therapy, which is promoting the same state of mindfulness but through experiential exercises through the classes and therapy and and not necessarily through formal meditation. So what is acceptance commitment therapy? The goal is to accept um, unwanted private experiences, so thoughts or feelings, which we can't control anyway. And so to do this, to develop a consistent observer, to observe your thoughts and feelings, the state of mindfulness, and the other piece of this is actually figuring out what your, what your most important values are in life and finding a way to live those values in every day, to reach those values through daily goals. 
and that's a kind of activating part of the therapy that's, that can be life-changing for people. So even if they're feeling bad or about themselves or about um, their ability to achieve a goal, they're committing to action every day that changes their behavior. So it's, the goal isn't to feel better, but it's actually to live the life that you want to live. To, um, to try to gain control of your feelings is actually losing control of your life because we understand about thought suppression and ironic processes. And here's a quote from the, one of the founders of ACT. If you can't accept the feeling for now, you'll be stuck with it. So feelings get more sticky if we can't accept them. But if you, can, if you can accept them, you can change your world so you don't have that feeling later. So it can dissipate naturally. You give it permission to go away by letting it be there for now. So the idea is to change your behavior in order to live by your values. Don't change your behavior in order to change your feelings. So how do we, how do, we do that? This awareness of awareness. Part of it is changing our relationship to thoughts. So we tend to just look at the content. So what is that telling us? But by maintaining this consistent, developing this consistent observer, we actually are able to notice thoughts rather than being caught up in the thoughts and the storyline and following it. We notice the thoughts, we see them for what they are, and then we can dismiss the thoughts. We don't have to be actually driven by the content of our thoughts and living what they are, but we actually observe them and let them go. And this promotes psychological flexibility, the ability to live in different contexts and have different things happen without getting stuck in our head. So in this observing self, I'm going to have you try to look at your own observer. We all have this observing self, and we want to try to foster and notice this transcendent sense of self so that we have this consistent perspective to view our experience from. So I'd like you to close your eyes and actually first look at the screen in case this helps you. You can choose your own imagery. You are going to become the sky. So the metaphor is that you are the sky. You are the container, the holder of the contents. Now the weather changes throughout the day and throughout the minute. And at some point it rains, at some point their clouds blow by, and then the sun comes out and goes. So the weather is always changing, and you're observing it. The weather changes over and over, but the sky remains pure and clear. And when you close your eyes, you can remember that you are not the clouds, and you're not the weather. You're not the rain. You're not the sun. You are the whole container of the sky. And the sky is always there when emotions get negative or positive. You can notice them, notice the content, but you are not the content. Thoughts, I'm a failure, you can notice the thought, but it doesn't mean that you are a failure. So you can open your eyes and think about what you just did is you looked at thoughts not through thoughts. Usually we just look through our eyes and we think thoughts are absolute reality and they're true. 
But if you can step above that and re realize that you are actually the, the sky, not the weather, you can actually look down at your thoughts and feelings. And that's the awareness of awareness process. That's just a slight taste of it. So the other piece in, in ACT is the goal piece. So you can, um, we won't do this now, but you did get in your handout a goal sheet. And you can think about your values, about how you want to live your life, your priorities, and what, how you want to be in the world. And there are four domains here, work, uh, personal growth, relationships, and leisure. So you can think about how you want to be in these different areas and then think about how close you are to that bullseye in the center and choose what you want to work on. And then the next step is to think about to live those values. What would it look like? What would the goal be to get there? And how would you, on a daily basis, live that goal? So our current study is, um, as I mentioned, is on parents of children with autism and parents of normal, typical children. And uh, these parents, we were trying to identify resiliency factors and study their appraisal and how they regulate emotions, particularly looking at acceptance of the situation of being a caregiver and having their child have this condition and avoidance. And then, of course, for the intervention, we want to intervene exactly on those um, types of coping. We want to promote acceptance and reduce avoidance to promote greater psychological resiliency so they can deal with, live there every day and uh, feel less stress, not by pushing away negative emotions, but by actually accepting them. So it's kind of paradoxical. We have uh, lined up these great teachers, Dara Westrup, who's an ACT trainer, and Will and Teresa Kabat-Zinn, who are mindfulness trainers. So we've developed this class. We've combined these two. We're developing an app. We're about to test it. And now we need just a dose of hope that this intervention will help and work. And our goal is to use mindfulness to reduce the stress cognitions, reduce the stress arousal. And in turn, this should promote awareness of all the positive things out there that are so easy to miss, even the small things. And together, this should, we hope, help with uh, slowing the rate of aging in telomeres. There's a quote in your slides from the Dalai Lama. I won't read it, but um, again, it, it was emphasizing this idea that the things around us, all the context, are just context, and it's how uh, that be, the, it's the attitudes and behaviors of others that merely are circumstances in which we live our lives, and the quality of our lives is a result of our own attitudes and behavior. So really, we really want to get to trying to given what we've been dealt with in life is trying to reduce this perceived stress and, and be resilient in that way. So what are the take-home points? Well, caregiving stress provides opportunities for resiliency, but there are no, it's not an easy path and there are no easy answers about what helps for any particular person. Here are some obvious things that help. Now, caregivers have to take care of themselves. Self-care is even more important for caregivers because they're under so much stress. And you can think of that metaphor that you have to put on your oxygen mask first if you're going to help the little child next to you. Exercise. I bet you thought I was, you were off the hook because I haven't mentioned exercise. Um, exercise is probably the most, one of the most important health behaviors because it really does reduce physiological stress. It also helps with shifting our mental processes to um, be more in our prefrontal cortex. 
And we have lots of research on exercise um, that shows the benefits across the spectrum. But in particular, our research at UCSF shows that it, it helps for people under high stress. It, is, um, it helps caregivers so that even if they're feeling high stress, if they're also exercising, they're not having that accelerated aging process, that telomere shortening. It's the work of Eli Putterman here at UCSF. Social connections, one of the most important buffers to chronic stress having at least one confidant, um, but having more than that since you, um, you'll need to use those connections. And caregivers find tremendous solace also from sharing their stories with others for both instrumental help as well as emotional help, since other people might, can't quite understand what their daily life is like. And then active coping when possible, when you can change a situation. And, of course, the serenity prayer um, here is so relevant because... Um, the wisdom is knowing what you can change and focusing on active coping efforts just on what you can change. And then the, the newer points that we've been talking about, which is that how we view a stressor and how we view our mind actually matters. So we can notice whether we're having challenge and threat appraisals. We can take advantage of the opportunity to reappraise things, to view the stress response as helpful, and to also try to... Um, to promote moments of mindfulness when we can so that we don't get lost in the busy and stressful context of our lives. To notice, um, to try to develop this consistent observer that we have that we can foster, to notice passing experience, and to have humor about it. So you might, when you start to notice your thoughts, it's really amusing when you see how critical um, you tend to be. That's often the case, and you can laugh at your thoughts and just label them as thoughts. So that's partly what we need to do is not believe everything we think. Um, and then the, um, the parts that are uncontrollable to help us accept those parts that we just can't change. So I'm going to end again by having you close your eyes and leading you through a very short um, loving-kindness exercise that is very, very helpful and important for caregivers. So now I want you to, to bring awareness to your breathing and your body. And just let yourself relax in your seat. Everywhere your body has contact with the seat and the floor, just let the tension release from those and flow out. Now focus on your heart area and have an attitude of kindness toward yourself. Think of someone who's been kind or, and loving toward you. And think for a moment of how you feel about them and why you might be grateful to them. And now I'd like you to focus those feelings on yourself And say to yourself, may I be healthy, may I be peaceful, may I be content, may I experience love, may I experience kindness, may I accept myself exactly as I am, may my life be rich and meaningful.
And that's a version of loving kindness. Usually we start and we say this toward other people, toward people we're grateful for. For the caregiver, we also especially need to say it for ourselves. You can also say it for the person you're taking care of. So it's a lovely prayer that can... Um, that has been also studied, this kind of fostering compassion towards self and others that tends to be very helpful, and it only takes a few minutes. So I'm going to end there and take any questions. So the great question, that's um, that's a whole lecture in itself, right? So the question was, what happens when you... When you do a short meditation like this, just within a few minutes, what's happening in the body and the brain? What's happening in someone who does this every day? And, and how is it changing them? So in the, um, in, the, in the moment, when we turn on the relaxation response, we are changing our breathing rate, which Margaret has studied, which changes blood pressure. We're also... Um, changing our, the focus of our attention in our brain. Now, when we are focusing our attention on our body, for example, we're using different areas of the, pre, of the prefrontal cortex. And this actually changes our experience in important ways. So we now know how important it is to focus on the body and not just ignore it, neck down. And, for example, in one study, people were... Um, uh, who were addicts were, were taught the body scan, and they found that doing the body scan reduced cravings. So focusing on the body actually reduced activity in the primitive area of the brain for drive, stress, and, and uh, reward, seeking reward. And so it increases activity in the prefrontal cortex. Now, what about people who meditate every day? Well, there have been studies that looked at the brain activity of, for example, Buddhist monks, and they do look different, and they respond to stressors differently. So, for example, the startle response, they don't have as quick of a startle response. So um, another finding in meditators is that they have a thicker prefrontal cortex. So they actually, the volume of that part of the thinking brain, not the reactive brain, is actually enhanced and thicker. So that's what, um, that's what we all, you know, would, would hope for. And, and one of the things that we're teaching is not that... Um, we're not training people to meditate every day, although I think that would be fabulous, but rather to use mindfulness in, informally in daily life. So within moments, to notice where their thoughts and emotions are and notice their breathing and to be less stress-reactive that way. One of the best ways to get there is to do the formal meditation, but we think there are other ways to get there. Yes? Right. So what are resources for caregivers locally? I listed some websites that have more national resources. At um, it really in this information age, there are niches of support groups, and it really depends on what type of caregiving you're doing. So, for example, there are many um, support groups for dementia caregivers, and some are led here at UCSF in the Memory and Aging Clinic. There are also groups for mothers and parents. I keep saying mothers, but mothers and fathers of children with autism, it turns out the mother's usually typically the main caregiver. And so, again, you would need to web surf the web for that. But I know there, there are chat, there are a lot of kind of listservs for, for people caring for someone with, diff, with different um, conditions. And, um, Margaret, are there any at the Osher Center? 
That was just absolutely great. Let me just step in and say that we've just started a program at the Osher Center for mindfulness-based stress reduction that is really shaped and uh, revised for dementia caregivers. And I'm just now sitting here thinking we need to do the same thing for parenting caregivers. I think that that would be a real addition. But that is a new mindfulness group that we've just begun. And it's, uh, they're finishing the first round, uh, and this is going to be an ongoing service that we offer to people. So, yes, let me look at Great. So this was, yeah, it's, it does sound high, doesn't it? This was a, um, a AARP and Alliance for Caregivers joint survey, and they do this survey um, every few years to, to look at caregiving. And when you, um, so it depends on how you define caregiving. I've been mostly talking about um, full-time caregiving for uh family member who lives with you for years and years, but they included um, have you, uh, so caregiving any time in the last year. So that means that if someone has a surgery and needs to recovery for, recover for many months, that counts as caregiving. So I think that the definition probably includes more of the short-term caregiving as well as the long-term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that question. How can we help people with the acceptance piece? I think that's the hardest piece. I think for some people, it never happens. For other people, it takes years and years. And I don't know that there's anything we can do or say to speed that up. And in fact, that's probably, you know, people, caregivers often hate maxims. And, you know, when people say, like, it's going to get better, um, you know, things will get better, that's not what they want to necessarily hear or what they believe. And so it's hard to know how to help. I really think that the support groups are incredibly helpful. Magical things happen in a support group because people see themselves reflected in other people, and they, you know, they share the collective wisdom of what they've been through. Maybe I can... Yes, please. This is an area that... Um, that the two of us study this a lot, and I, I think that that is Alyssa's absolutely right that it's so hard to accept those things that we can't change. And you'll remember she's sort of that serenity prayer. So I think part of that is to then acknowledge that. And then the, you mentioned, uh, Alyssa mentioned Susan Folkman, and one of her, uh, she did research on this that when it's something you can't change, acceptance is so important. And then the way to cope with that is to then work with your emotions. And you can do that with mindfulness. You can say, okay, that is there. I feel really sad about that. And then if you want to work with that emotion, first acknowledging it and saying this makes sense because it's important to be there. But then there are ways to just work and emotion-focused coping so that you can then take a break from that. I'm going to go for a hike. One of the other things that I was just going to share that um, is that even in the midst of really sad things that occur, very funny things and happy things can occur at the same time. This is a new discovery that depressed mood and positive mood are not ends of a spectrum, that we can feel depressed, and at the same time you can experience you know, that there are beautiful flowers in the garden, or people will notice, even in moments of real despair, there are some things that occur that are positive, and you can hold both of those. And I, I may talk some about that next week. I, was, I care for my mother. Now, I'm not a full-time caregiver, but I play a major role in caring for my mother, who has Alzheimer's. And I'll, there was this great moment where we're try, I'm trying to... I had not been trained well enough in how to move her 
from the wheelchair to the bed or something like that. And I remember we're trying to, I'm trying to move her and she outweighs me. So I'm like lifting her and lifting and she starts to giggle. And the next thing I know, I'm like lying on top of her in this bed. You know, I've got her in the bed. We're all safe. Nobody has broken bones. And I just like looking at her and we both started laughing. And she's just laughing because it was so funny. You know, she can still laugh. And we were just laughing. And there's a sadness in there that, yes, I had to do that. But there are these moments that are just, and you embrace that moment. And I just laughed and laughed. And I I can still, I can actually, it's so vivid. I remember, I'm getting chills just thinking about it because I can remember the feeling, the looking, the laughing. So grab those moments like flowers in your life, and that becomes the bouquet. And yes, you know, maybe it's a bouquet that has you know, walking through some darker skies, but you can still look down at that flower. I'll always have that memory. And I think about that each day when I leave. She's also in hospice. And I leave that. And I I think about the little moments that were really good. And that's what life is about because it's, it's, we're given this whole, you know, mosaic of life. So I just mentioned that and then turn it back over. I think there's another question. Okay, one more question. Yeah. She's waving. Uh, I couldn't agree more, yeah. Right, so the example was um, one of her um, her personal situation was she found herself in a crisis, a caregiving crisis that took six months to even see out of the fog, you know, caring for her mother after this the traumatic um, event happened. And the question is, what can we do earlier? That was... That was something I should have learned how to cope with in high school, this resilience training idea. And I couldn't agree with you more that we neglect training people about um, emotion regulation and how to use the mind and have even an observer in the mind. It's just something that we um, think is invisible and maybe will develop naturally or we don't need, and that just all, none of that's true. So I think there are programs. There's a movement toward that. My own son um, gets mindfulness training in his school through a program called Mindful Schools. And it's one of his favorite parts of the day. He says it's the calmest time in the classroom. And there's also um, other people like Dan Siegel who writes about how education should be training um, the mind, not just you know the content and the facts, but actually helping kids um, integrate across levels of the brain so that they are stress resilient. Yes. So anyway, do we have just, it? Yeah, please. we have time. One more. Oh, okay. goodness. Yeah, mindful schools. You can find it on the web, and you know we're lucky that we have one locally. And I and I hope that that idea spreads to other areas. Yes. So I think what you're highlighting is that. Sometimes we, we are not, sometimes families are protected from this and they don't see it. But there are other families where bringing the children in so that they're aware, bringing in our, our grandparents or people that need caregiving in as much as we can, having that be a learning experience for young people. The other, I want to thank Alyssa for giving me an opportunity to share some of this. Um, and I think the other thing that's coming out of this, it, Alyssa mentioned this, and that's that in these experiences, you learn so much. 
as you, that's another piece of the opportunity that even with, we heard a question about type 1 diabetes, and this young lady is now saying she's teaching other people. You, be, you learn so much through this process that actually is very valuable at other points in life. You get that resilience quotient going that uh, Alyssa outlined where you don't respond as much to certain things because you have been to the mountaintop. You've been through some really incredible experiences. And then I think we can share more of this um, in courses like this and, um, and make this a part of uh, experiences that kids have in schools, you know, in their junior, um, you know, groups, you know, like the Girl Scouts and so much and so forth, and there are badges for these. And, you know, I think there's more we can do. Some of us as young people might have even... Uh, you know, visited nursing homes or now assisted living, bringing your kids into those experiences. Some of you remember Princess Diana engaging her young children, uh, William and Harry, in some of the work she did with AIDS. That we There's lots of opportunities that we can do that, um, either for children in our lives or other young people, so that they can have those experiences and, and have that intergenerational training and learning that you just described. I want to thank Alyssa. I want to thank all of you who shared and all of you who came this evening. Thank you so very much. She's fabulous. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.